series. We'll be carrying on with One Kings later. Uh, next week, I've got a, a, probably a one-off preach, and quite a short one, because we've got this welcoming of Stephen and Annette, and I feel God's given me something to preach on for that morning. And um, then I'm in India for two weeks, and uh, so I will pick up with One Kings later, and it will be past this moment. It will be on into something else. So this is a bit of a conclusion of quite a challenging um, mini-series within Kings, One Kings. We're looking at 1 Kings 13 again this morning. If you've got a Bible, please turn to that. And uh, I felt God sort of challenging me out of this, and I, I do hope it's been challenging. I want us to respond and not just be challenged and forget about it, because I believe God's calling us young and old, not, you know, members of the church, not if you're not a member of this church, I trust each week in its own right would have something for you anyway. Um, I think God's calling us to, to just be 100% committed, to be totally devoted to Jesus, even in, and especially in actually, the context of having our own studies to do, like at university, our own work to do, uh, secular work as we sometimes call it, but God is, Jesus is Lord of all of it, and God's in all of it, and uh, we don't sort of have a view of a sort of secular spiritual divide we shouldn't have that greek thing uh that we we need to see the whole thing as a life devoted to jesus and serving him so that's many things on my heart and even as we start uh, some changes in the church and moving forward I, i feel we've got to be all on the front foot uh with him so this week i want to look at the last of this sort of series on compromise we looked at solomon that was sad in the end so many wonderful promises and yet he blew it, really, uh, as he compromised in that particular area with his wives, his foreign wives, but that really led to idolatry and, and worshipping other gods. And then Jeroboam, who we're sort of still with, actually, at the moment, and Jeroboam, who had, um, again, amazing promises that God said, I, I'll give you a des- dynasty like David's if you walk with me. But out of fear out of uh, just he could not trust God, basically. He couldn't trust God, so he decided, I can't let my people go to Jerusalem, into Rehoboam's territory. Don't worry about the details. It's just into what he would have seen as enemy territory. God said, you've got to worship me as I've told you to. One place, one system, if you like. In those days, it was the temple and the sacrificial system with the Levitical priesthood. For us, it's through Jesus Christ. But God said, and, and, and Jeroboam said, no, I can't do that. It's too much uh, danger in all that. I can't trust that. I've got to do it my own way. And he made up his own religion. Part of which was to have two centers of worship at Bethel and Dan. And in those, he put a, an idol of, of, a, of a golden calf. And we explained about that another day, so I won't get into detail. But it was incredible. It led the people of Israel, and we're talking about ten tribes here, into idolatry. The majority of the people of Israel were in idolatry, worshipping calves at Bethel and at Dan. Now that's where we are with 1 Kings 13, the worship centre at Bethel. But it's not just, well, it's all bad. They shouldn't be worshipping at Bethel, should be at Jerusalem. Shouldn't be worshipping golden calves, obviously. But actually, only Levitical tribe were priests. Yet, he's got anybody being a priest, and he himself the king, Jeroboam, is offering sacrifices, which is what he's doing in the story we have in 1 Kings 13. And the kings were not to do that. 
Um, in fact, Saul got, got seriously judged for, for, for sacrificing. And uh, rightly so, because that kings and the priests were separate. And, and so Jeroboam's just doing everything wrong. Now, into this context of mess and compromise at Bethel, God sent a prophet called, in our story, a man of God from Judah. Now, we looked at that last week. And he's full of God. He's a passionate, brave prophet. And he comes and brings the word of God to Jeroboam. And it's a powerful word. And it's a shocking word of judgment. Now, Jeroboam at first says, seize him. He's he's angry. He wants the man seized, perhaps killed. I don't know. But God does something amazing. And and his arm is shriveled and and paralyzed. This is Jeroboam's when he stretches it out to point at the man. And he, he cries out for mercy. And the man of God prays. And God heals Jeroboam's arm. Now, I want you to know that is a sign of mercy and grace. The whole thing is about grace. God has sent this man... Of Judah, from Judah to give Jeroboam and the people a chance to repent before judgment comes. It's all about mercy. And this arm thing is illustrating that. If you will repent and call to me, you'll, you'll be healed. And he is healed. So, and, and he's quite subdued after that, Jeroboam. And he says to the man of God, please come back and have, have a meal with me and I'll give you a gift and all that sort of thing. This may have been probably was, to try and buy the favour and support of this powerful man of God. And uh, God had told the man in Judah, you are not to go back. And the reason he said that is, you're not to encourage them until I know they've repented. That's the thinking, if you like, spiritually. Because it's all very fine to be sorry for yourself when things go a bit wrong, like Jeroboam was. But God's looking for action. He's looking for Jeroboam to put things right. And he doesn't want the man from Judah to to get involved too early. So he's told clearly, leave them, give them the word, and go back home. And so he starts off back home, having declined the very tempting and probably very uh, lucrative offer from the king. So we're going to pick the story up, although we read it last week. We're going to read the second part of it again from verse 11 of 1 Kings 13. Now, we've seen the man of Judah's side. Now, we're going to think a little more about the old prophet today. We talked about the young prophet or the young man of God last week. Now, there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Their father asked them, which way did he go? And his son showed him the road, which road the man of God from Judah had taken. So he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. And when they had saddled the donkey for him, he mounted it and rode after the man of God. He found him sitting under an oak tree and asked, are you the man of God who came from Judah? I am, he replied. So the prophet said to him, come home with me and eat. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told, this place being Bethel, of course, I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. The old prophet answered, well, I too am a prophet, as you are. And an angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that you may eat bread and drink water. But he was lying to him. So the man of God returned with him and ate and drank in his house. While they were sitting at the table, the word of the Lord came to the old prophet who had brought him back. He cried out in the, to the man of God who had come from Judah, 
This is what the Lord says. You have defied the word of the Lord and have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. You came back and ate bread and drank water in the place where he told you not to eat and drink. Therefore, your body will not be buried in the tomb of your fathers. When the man of God had finished eating and drinking, the prophet who had brought him back saddled his donkey for him. As he went on his way, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown down on the road with both the donkey and the lion standing beside it. Some people who'd passed by saw the body thrown down there with the lion standing beside the body and they went and reported it to the, in the city where the old prophet lived. That's Bethel, of course. When the prophet who had brought him back from his journey heard of it, he said, it is the man of God who defied the word of the Lord. The Lord has given him over to the lion which has mauled him and killed him as the word of the Lord warned him. The prophet said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. They did so. He went out and found the body thrown down on the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside it. The lion had neither eaten the body nor mauled the donkey. So the prophet picked up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back to his own city to mourn for him and bury him. Then he laid the body in his own tomb and they mourned over him and said, Oh, my brother. After burying him, he said to his sons, When I die, bury me in the grave where the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the message he declared by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places in the towns of Samaria will certainly come true. Now, Old Testament history is real stories. They are real events. They are real people having real dealings with a real God. They are not myths and they're not stylized stories. So there's something that sometimes bothers us. This story probably bothers you a bit. Because it doesn't work out like it should. The man of God blows it. We saw that last week. He compromises, caught out by the religious arguments and the super-spirituality of the old prophet. And now we're going to learn about the old prophet, who is called a prophet because he was a prophet. He clearly was once a true man of God. And we'll see that as we go through. Now, what you learn in Old Testament stories is a narrative of what happened, not what should have happened, or what would have been better if it had happened, or what ought to have happened. No, what did happen? It doesn't end happily, because often things don't. The, the man of God blows it. The old prophet messes it all up for the man of God, and then regrets it, and is weeping over the grave, and saying, oh, this guy was a man of God, and uh, what he said is going to happen. But actually, he's blown it as well. Because although he sees the truth, he didn't see it early enough and he didn't respond radically enough. Let's think about it a bit this morning. The strange case of the old prophet. The old prophet was a man of God who had walked with God. But clearly what has happened is simple and challenging to all of us. He had settled down and made his home at Bethel. And Bethel, in this part of Israel's history, Bethel stands for mixture, compromise, idolatry, sin. Mix it all together. That's what's happening at Bethel. And this old prophet lives relatively comfortably in the environment of all of that lot, in Bethel. He did nothing about the sin around him. He does nothing about the idolatry that's going on under his nose. He's grown familiar with it. And he's apparently comparatively unbothered by it. That is clearly what the situation is. And I want to say to us all right away, every one of us in this room, 
myself included, that is so easy to do that you just get used to worldliness. You just get used to sin. You just get used to the godless environment around you and you sort of accept it. This guy just lives with it. He is potentially a man of God. He's lost his way. We might call him backslidden. And he's just got used to what's going on around him. He happily coexists, listen to this, with all sorts of things that God is angry with. He happily coexists. He happily lives amongst something which God is building up to judgment on and has clearly declared these things are wrong. I want to say right now, God save me and save us from familiarity with sin. And I tell you, I get familiar with it, don't you? Familiarity with pornography. I was talking to my father-in-law last Monday, we went to Hastings, and we're saying, you know, what you now watch on telly and in films, that when we were kids, you, you know, there'd be blue films. You just never saw it. You know, just overt sexual stuff. And we were, we're talking about just what's available on the internet and stuff like that. And, and how you sort of get used to it. You get used to rebellion amongst young people. You get used to violence. You get used to bad language. Bad language on the television. Bad language in the media. You just get used to it. Get used to blue jokes. You get used to atheism being the norm and agnosticism and, oh, that's okay. And, you know, I'm not saying you can fight every battle, but there needs to be a holy indignation. In a way, you need to have a sort of holy neurosis. We shouldn't be too laid back. (laughs) We should fidget. I fidget when I watch the news. I don't always get it right, but I I don't. But you think, well, you're a bit balmy. I want to be balmy for Jesus. I do sometimes. I think, I don't know that I do want to watch that. And I don't know that I do want to hear. Now, I do and I don't. I, I, I've got to be, you know, engaged with the culture. Of course I have. I'm not mocking that. But you've got to keep something of, your, of God's indignation about some of these things. Because it keeps you from just blending in like the old prophet does. And in the end, we're going to see some sad side effects of that. You need to keep shocked and shockable. <laughs> keep shockable. Don't be too cool. You know, keep shockable about sexuality. Keep shockable about family breakdown, social dysfunction. Let's keep shockable about what people do that are obviously an affront to God. I don't mean become self-righteous, legalistic, pompous, critical people, just shocked, just indignant, just aching in your heart. Just, oh God, change it. Oh God, help me to do something about it. Oh God, that's so bad. Please. You have to be careful you don't get judgmental. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just not getting familiar with it all. This guy was quite at ease in Bethel, and that is his big problem. What are some of the signs of what happens in that situation? We could call them signs of backsliding, but they're very simple. There's a spiritual dullness, a spiritual dullness. If you look at the beginning of verse 1, you'll see, read this. It says, By the word of the Lord, a man came from Judah to Bethel. And the beginning of verse 11 says, Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel. Just let's leave those two up for a moment. Hang on a minute. (laughs) Why is God sending a man from Judah when there's a prophet living at Bethel? Well, because the prophet living at Bethel is not hearing from God, is he? When God wants to speak to Jeroboam, he can't say anything to the old prophet living at Bethel. He's lost listening to God. He's not really tuned in to God at all. And so God has to send someone 
from way away, relatively, it's, you know, a bit away in those days, to come over with this word. He has got so familiar that his hearing is dull and he doesn't hear from God anymore. Actually, the only real answer for this guy is a radical realignment of his life, something he doesn't appear to do in the story and I suspect didn't do or we'd have been told, which would probably be to withdraw from Bethel and get back to having time with God. Seriously. We don't quite know much detail, of course, but clearly he was not in tune with God anymore, though once upon a time he was. He's not called a prophet for nothing. The second thing we notice is his family is affected. His family is affected. Look at verse 11. Now there was a certain old prophet living in Bethel whose sons came and told him all that the man of God had done there that day. They also told their father what he had said to the king. Now you can just gloss over that except you need to pause, focus in and say, hang on a minute, what happened was there was a totally wrong mixture idolatry thing going on where Jeroboam was offering sacrifices to a golden calf and into that came the, 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 the radical interruption of the man of God. That's what happens in the first part of the chapter. But this guy's sons were at that ritual. They were at that service, if you can call it that. They were there. They saw it all happen and they told dad everything that the man of God said. So his sons were clearly fully involved with what Jeroboam was doing and it was totally wrong. But interestingly, it would seem the old prophet himself was not there. So he actually maybe didn't quite go that far. Maybe he just couldn't bring himself to go and worship a golden calf and to go and sort of see Jeroboam doing what only a priest should do and and all the mess of it. So he tolerated it. And listen, he tolerated his sons going to it. But he didn't go himself. Now that is quite an interesting challenge. (laughs) That there's a sense of which you can tolerate stuff and then you can tolerate your kids being involved. I speak as a parent. And I'll tell you this, they will embrace what you merely tolerate. So you, I mean, you've got to work this through. You merely tolerate it, but they might well do it. And that's what happens. He tolerates it, his kids do it. And and I think it just is, you have to watch this. There is no sense in which this guy, with integrity, could have just told his sons, do not go to Jeroboam's ceremony. He had to get himself out of Bethel. So it's all about what he does, not just being a heavy dad. But on the other hand, just a warning is there. He tolerates it. His sons are fully involved in it. We have to be careful. We have to be challenged. Let's talk about the love of money. This is a surprising one out of the story. You have to sort of know a bit of background to understand this. This guy clearly had lots of donkeys. Donkeys feature quite a lot in this story. Did you notice? Donkeys come in regularly. Well, he, he, he had his own donkey. There's several references I've got on the screen there for you to prove to you the point that donkeys feature in the story. And he has his own donkey. He seems to be able to lend a donkey to the man of God and still have another donkey to go and find the body of the man of God. So he's got donkeys. You might say, great. Well, donkeys, for donkeys, read four by fours. Read good cars. People own donkeys if they've got money. This guy has not got poor through compromising. And actually there's some other clues which won't go up on the screen. In verse 20 it says they all sat round the table. Now actually every commentator would say only wealthy homes had tables. 
Only a wealthy home had a table in these days. But the real clincher is verse 30, which with a little bit of thought, many of you could work out. He laid the body of the man of God in his own tomb and said, when, I'm buried, when I die, bury me with him. This guy already had his own tomb. Think of Joseph of Arimathea, who had a tomb for Jesus to be buried in. That was a sign of wealth. This guy is wealthy. He's got as many donkeys as he wants. He's got his own tomb already prepared for when he dies. And he's got a table, which is no big deal to us, but was to them. (laughs) So this guy is not poor. He's a prophet, and he's not got poor by compromising. That's quite a challenge. It's not to say that he got his money badly, because I don't know that he did. But I think there is a warning here. Money, too much belonging, possession, can dull you to standards that you shouldn't be dulled to. They can make you feel comfortable. There's nothing wrong with having things, but there's this, these are the dangers. You feel, if I've got loads of stuff, I must be okay and God must be happy with me. I must be okay. If God wasn't happy with what I'm doing, why would he let me have all these donkeys and this tomb and everything else? And and it's easy to do that. It's easy to think that money and possessions are a reward for faithfulness. They're not. They're a sign of grace. (laughs) They're just God's goodness. They're just God's goodness. Just thank God for for them and realize you don't deserve them. You're just a steward. And they come from God. The other thing they do, they can make you sort of feel like, I'm clever, really. I'm, 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 I'm able to sort this out. I've been able to acquire this wealth. So they give you pride in yourself and therefore not relying on God. Nothing wrong with the possessions, but the love of money has got many snares, and we need to be careful that we realize that they're not a sign of us being a really together person. You know, you are blessed, but it's not just for your pride. It's for your good stewardship. So here's another thing about possessions. We need to learn that there is an element of test to them. Literally, God tests us by giving us stuff. Sometimes God tests us by letting us have stuff. Will you trust in your wealth or will you trust in him? Will it rule you or will you rule it? Can you use it wisely or will you be ensnared by it? I think we need to understand possessions are a test. They're a blessing but they're a test. How will we use them? Will we thank God for them? Or will we just take them for granted? Well, I guess this guy got it wrong because he seemed to be very comfortable and he wasn't seeming to have much contact with God. And here's another sad one, a sign of his backslide sudden state. He was putting on an act. Religiously, he put on an act. This is really in verse 18. This was a lapsed prophet. The old prophet answered, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel said to me by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that you may eat bread and drink water. Why have I spoken like that? Well, this guy must have said it in a pretty convincing way. The man of God, the the young prophet from Judah, is a godly man. He is a godly man. He's fooled by this. It must have been quite a good act, mustn't it? It must have, he's managed to resist Jeroboam's temptation. This must have come over pretty convincingly. I too am a prophet. Hear the word of the Lord to you from the angel. You know, I mean, this guy not only knew the right language, he knew how to present the right language. He knew how to talk the talk. He knew how to sound religious. He knew how to sound convincing. 
He knew how to speak with authority so that the young man had got to, oh, this is a contradicting word of God, but yeah, clearly this guy's heard from God. Now, this, I don't think this man of God is, is a naive particularly. So this old prophet is good at putting on a religious act. It's quite challenging. The whole thing had become an act for him. He could turn it on when he wanted to. He could act the prophet when he wanted to. His faith and his ministry were not out of a relationship with God. They weren't out of a passion for the Lord. They were a role he played. I too am a prophet, as you are. They were a role he played. Do you know, it's challenging. You can do that. It can all be nothing inside. The whole thing was a lie. There was nothing inside at all. He made it all up. But he could do it in a very convincing way. We must keep real with God. It is very easy when you've been an old prophet and been around for a while, you know, how, you know the right noises to make. You know the right tones to give. You know the right hallelujahs, depends which circle you move in. You know the right sort of thingies to do. Now, I, you can say, oh, John, that sounds cynical. I'm not being cynical. I know myself. I know I can, I, could, I can be quite convincing when I'm feeling very empty inside sometimes. Now, I have to live with the balance that sometimes as a leader, you have to press through that because you can't get up here and say, oh, I'm not going to do anything this morning because I've been... So you have to sort of sort yourself out in God. But having said that, I get scared sometimes because I think, well, I'm not going to make up a prophecy. And I've had, I've had pressures on... I, I don't prophesy much here. Nobody, nobody here has put pressure on me, by the way. Internal pressure. I found, you know, for various reasons that, that God hasn't given me many here. I have them in other contexts. But I've even been to fairly significant conferences and I, men who I love and respect, and you'll probably guess who I'm talking about, greatly, say, you know, we're looking forward to hearing a word from you, you know, my prophetic word. And you think, well, and I, I could sort of make one up, but is that a prophetic word? I had a little picture in the car. And you, know, and you think, no, God, it's got to be from you. Because, I, I mean, you... And, and then it's how we, you know, you've got to keep real. It's scary. This guy can talk the talk. And do you know what the answer is? You say, well, what's the answer? Keep falling in love with Jesus. That's the answer. You say, how do I get it right? You won't get it right. You'll even prophesy and get it wrong. And sometimes, with the best intentions of the world, you'll start in God and then you'll end up in the flesh. And you can analyse till you're blue in the face. In the end, you need to make sure your relationship with God is right. And then do the best you can. Isn't that a spiritual principle? That is true. But you must keep falling in love with Jesus. There mustn't be just a husk of nothing that you can speak the talk the talk when you're required. And you can actually convince people that's pretty good. Oh, yeah. No, it wasn't. It wasn't a word from God. It was a lie. And actually, you need to say, God, keep me from that. Help me to just be gripped by truth. Help me to be gripped by what you've done for me, Lord. Help me to still be moved by the fact you died for me. These are the sort of things you've just got to keep working at. But, Lord, it still gets me that you love me. It still gets me that you died for me. Don't over because you're all very clever. That's your problem here. You're all too clever. But you're all very clever. Don't overanalyze. Oh, John said, well, I must be very, very careful. Yeah, be careful, but crumbs still contribute, still prophesy. I don't want a side effect of what I say this morning. John will think I'm an old prophet. He'll think I'm a false prophet. I'm not sitting here judging any of you. I want to hear from God. Only God knows your heart. But it's your heart that's going to be, have to be right. Okay? That's it. You can have a great heart and still make a mistake. So mistakes aren't the issue. 
This guy got it completely right and got nothing inside. He didn't get it right. He got it rightly presented and persuaded this guy, but it was nothing inside. It's what's inside. He needs to be gripped by that. And yet, we're moving on now from this backslidden thing. And yet, there is some spark, isn't there? There must have been some spark in this old prophet. I like to ask the questions. Here's two questions I ask. Why did the old prophet chase after the man of God? Why was he so eager to have him in his home? I do not think this was an evil intention in the classic sense of the word. I don't think he wanted to destroy the man of God. Every indication later in the story, when the man of God is killed by the lion, every indication is that he's grieved, that he's upset, that he buries the guy in his own tomb. I don't think he was out to destroy him. Jeroboam might have been at the first moment. When he said, seize him, Jeroboam's thought, my cheeky chap will have him executed. I don't think this fellow has that at all. So what is it that he's after? Well, maybe he felt a desire to be near the anointed man of God. Maybe it stirred something in him from the past. He wanted to fellowship with someone who clearly really knew God. He really did. He was attracted to the clarity. This is a move of God going on. Something's happening at last. I've got used to all this nonsense, which he probably knows it is, and nothing happens. This is religion, and you know, I can do the stuff. Yeah, angel spoke to me. And then suddenly something happens. Whoa! I want to know about this. I want a bit of this. I want to be a bit of an anointing. I want a taste of it. Real Christians, if you're a real Christian, if you're even in a backslidden state, God will still prod you. There'll be moments when you feel stirred. You'll hear things. You'll hear news. You'll go to a meeting maybe. You'll hear a preach and it will stir you. You'll say, oh, I want a bit of that. I I can see that. That's stirring me. Because the life of God is still in you. Of course it is. And you're stirred. I guess this guy was stirred in some way. So far, so good. Here's the next question. What was the old prophet's big mistake? What was his big mistake? Very simple. He clearly was not prepared to leave Bethel. He wanted to bring whatever it was stirred him back to his home in Bethel, in compromise, in mess. He did not want to get out of Bethel to where it was. So he did not want to leave his comfort zone. He did not want to leave his comfortable home. He wanted to bring the young prophet, we'll call him for simplicity, the young man of God, he wanted to bring him back to his territory and to his house. He wanted the power, he wanted the truth, but he wanted it on his terms. He wanted all this wonderful stuff going on back in his house, back here at Bethel, and he'd like to talk a bit further perhaps and just get the man to pray for him maybe. (laughs) I don't know. What should he have done? Well, I think he could have done most of the things up in the story, like getting his donkey. Where did he go? He went down there, says his son. Oh, he went that way. Right, give me my donkey. Get his donkey. I think the donkey bit, that's fine so far. When he meets the man of God under the tree, what should he have done? Something like this. Can I spend some time with you? Where can we meet up? Can I travel with you? Will you take me back to Judah with you? I need to meet God again. I need to get the fire you've got. Will you help me to rediscover my call from God? Up to the, I don't think it was wrong to chase after him. I think there was something in his heart that loved this man of God. He's quite grieved by the death. I don't think he's out to destroy him. 
but he wants to bring him back to his stuff. And he should have said, speak to me, help me. Take me where you go. Take me with you. Something like that. If he'd done that, it might, the whole thing, not only his story, but the whole story might have been very different. The whole impact on Jeroboam even. But sadly, he used his religious jargon to manipulate the man of God and get him back to his place. That's what he did. He used religious, devious sort of religious jargon stuff and he got the man of God tricked, if you like, into compromise back in his comfort zone. And of course it didn't work because all he managed to do was get the young man of God into disobedience, disaster, and he lost both, if it were. He lost the young man of God as well as things not changing in Jeroboam's place. Now, I don't know this guy's motives. Of course we don't. The Bible doesn't tell us. Motives can be complex. But worldly and backslidden Christians do find anointing attractive. And God does let you hear of moves of God. He lets you hear preaching that stirs your heart. He lets you experience things that that shake you up. But you must not try and turn them into some justification for yourself. Try and bring them to, to make you feel better and feel happier about yourself. I don't know this guy's motives, but sometimes there might even have been this motive in this guy. Sometimes there's a certain sort of perverse satisfaction in seeing that more committed one come down to your level. It sort of makes you feel less sort of, uh, of, a, of a disaster, less um, worried about your own situation, less convicted. So if you can get him to actually compromise, oh, he is coming back, all right. He said God told him not to, but I've managed to get him to come back. Even though you hate it, maybe it sort of justifies your position. All right, they're as bad as we are. All right, their family is a mess too. Okay, yeah, okay. (laughs) So I found out what's wrong with them, so I feel good now. Ever been there? I have. That's how I can tell you so well. I found out what's wrong with them, so I'm okay. And God said, you forget them. I want you to wake up. I want you to get get up off your backside. I don't worry about them. And I've done it. I thought, right, I mean, it's very easy to do. You think, right, now I know what's wrong with that, so I now feel good. Now I know that that is no better than me in many ways. And God says, look, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking me, God, to you. Don't worry about them. I'll deal with them separately. You hear from me. I'm telling you to get out of Bethel. I'm telling you, wake up, Bethel is under judgment, which is what's going on. Wake up, Bethel is under judgment. Bethel will be judged. This altar will be destroyed. You know, this whole stuff is coming down. Wake up. And he's got the man who brought that back here so he feels quite good. Oh, right, he's at my table now. Yeah, okay, yeah, nice guy. So he's he's lost the edge of what God's saying to him personally. We all need to watch it. We don't know what his motive was. But what we do know is that suddenly he actually did hear from God. And there's an impression that this was a shock to everyone. Verses 20 and 22, it's going to go up on the screen so you don't have to read it, but I won't read it all, but I bet it spoilt the dinner party, don't you? They're all having this meal around the table. And I I think this guy just got a word from God and he knew the reality. This is the thing. He knew what a real word of God was. Even though he'd done a phony one to get the guy back, he knew what it really was to hear from God. And God spoke to him. And he's sitting at the meal table, you know, past the salt, yes, past the coat, port to the right or whatever it is. And they're sitting at the dinner table and suddenly God speaks to him. God's got me, give me a word for you. God's given me a word for you. You shouldn't have come back to eat. You, you know, you did it. And you're going to die before your time. Essentially, that seems to be the word. 
You're going to die in judgment before your time, not be buried in your own thing. I bet the atmosphere changed, don't you? But they do seem to still finish their meal, which is quite funny. So they, okay, all in silence. (laughs) And then he lends him one of his four-by-fours to get home. He lends him his donkey, and off goes the man of God. Then we have the strange incident of what happens, and that is a clear indication that this is God. It's a clear indication of God. There were lions at this time in this part of the world. They were there for many years, actually. There were lions found in the Middle East up into the... Um, up into, you know, past the time of Jesus, up into AD. <laughs> I can't remember the years, I've read it somewhere. But, you know, lions weren't that rare, and you, they feature quite a lot in the Old Testament. And a lion does not do normally what happens here. The lion kills the man of God, doesn't touch the donkey, and the lion and the donkey stand passively beside the body of the man. It's supernatural. The lion doesn't maul the donkey, he doesn't eat the man, he doesn't eat bits of the man, it just kills him, and stands by him, and the donkey stands there passively as well. Donkey's not scared rigid, which it would be of a lion, of course, and go balmy and start eeyawing like a maniac. None of that happens. They both stand passively. It's a supernatural act of God. And people see it, and it's the talk of the town. This isn't done quietly. It's not far outside Bethel. And it says the whole city knew about it. The city where the guy is. And the old prophet immediately understands what this is about. And a couple of quick verses to confirm it. There is clearly genuine grief. We get that in verse 30, where he says, Oh, my brother. And there's honor and respect because he buries him, verse 31 and 32, in his own tomb. And he says, with, I think, a really sad but genuine faith, what he said is going to happen. What he said will happen. You get it in verses 31 32. These shrines will be pulled down. These high places will be destroyed, exactly as he said. And if you're interested, you can read in your own time 2 Kings 23, verses 15 to 20, which is a total fulfillment of this prophecy, and the tomb of this man of God is referred to there. And uh, it's all sort of followed up in 2 Kings 23. Don't look at it now. But this guy, 2 Kings 23, verses 15 to 20, this guy realizes this is of God. There's a sadness about him. There's, there's a soberness, but it is too late to do much good. Ah, it's too late to do much good about it. I mean, it is possible that his sons and he had a bit of a re, in, rediscovery of faith in the true God, but we don't hear that they moved away from Bethel. But most seriously, in verses 33 and 34, which again will go up on the screen if you want them, Most seriously, Jeroboam, rather perversely, seems to react to this as confirmation of his own unnecessary response. He doesn't need to respond to the man of God's word. Maybe he sees the man of God, if you're as blind as Jeroboam, he maybe sees a sort of judgment on the man of God which somehow exonerates him. Who knows? But clearly, he is more determined than ever. Even after this, it says... Jeroboam didn't change his evil ways and actually got worse. Whoever wanted to be a priest, he had some choice before. Now anybody, you want to be one, you can be one. And the whole thing went on to come to a terrible judgment later. So what are some concluding comments? This is literally how I want to end this morning before we get back to worship. I think there's some points I'd just say from this morning. One is God knows that sometimes we must not offer comfort or receive comfort too soon. Sometimes God challenges us and he wants us to really hear it and do something about it. 
And sometimes we ourselves, I'm prone to this, can want to mollify the situation a person's in and want to encourage them and comfort them and say, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You know, God still loves you. Well, of course God loves them, but God's telling them to do something and change. So sometimes, like God was saying to the man of God, this is the point, just don't, just go away and let them change. Let them change. Don't go eating and fellowshipping with them until they've changed. That's really, I think, the message. And so sometimes we need to watch that in our attitude to others. We need to watch it in ourselves. When God stirs us up about something important, he's expecting us to put something into practice. The first goal, and this is where I think Jeroboam and the old prophet go wrong, Jeroboam and the old prophet, the first goal is not to get yourself happy again. Jeroboam, come back and just uh, let's talk. Uh, or the old prophet, wow, this is exciting. I like some of this excitement in my house. No, 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 that's not the first goal. The first goal is to get right with God. <laughs> the first goal is to do the right thing. And the feelings will follow later, and the blessings. God wanted them left in no doubt that things needed to change in Bethel big time. Big changes were needed in Bethel. And God didn't want them in any doubt on that. And here's the, I think, the final thing, really. There was a window of opportunity for Jeroboam and the old prophet. But both of them didn't take it. And I think God does give us all windows of opportunity. Most importantly, windows of opportunity to become a Christian. And you need to take it when it's there. When I was preparing this, my mind went back. And, you know, it's many years since I've thought of Mike. I had a friend, Mike, when I was at university. And when I was at university, I shared a flat with three non-Christian guys. There were four of us in the flat. Three of them weren't Christians. Two of them were drunken rugby players who used to smash the place up and I had to tidy it up. Punched holes in my doors several times. And Mike was a bit calmer. And, and Mike was, uh, I think he did politics and economics or something. He was quite a world-thinking type of guy. And Mike was quite interested in Christianity. And Michael came along with me to some evangelistic things at university. Michael... Um, talked about it. He loved to talk about philosophy. He loved to talk about the world. He loved to talk about, um, you know, is there a God and how it goes and, and that stuff. But Mike finally said something like this. It's not a quote. I'll sort it out when I'm old. I'll sort it out. And he used this phrase, which I've always remembered. It was a smirk. He said, I'll swap for my finals later. And, he, and that's how he dismissed it. He gave a smile. Swap, what he meant was he'll wait until he's nearly dead and then he'll sort out whether God's real and what he'll do with God. And he smirked and said, I'll swap for my finals later. I'm going to leave it, John. I'll swap for my finals later. Now, I don't know what's happened to Mike, but here's the sobering thing, you youngsters just starting university. I'm talking about when I was your age. Mike would now be 60, if he's still alive. Mike was quite a heavy smoker. We're talking about 1969, 70. People smoked. You heard of smoking? Yeah, they did. And Mike was quite a heavy smoker. I don't even know if Mike's still alive. I don't know whether Mike has ever thought about God again or about Jesus again. He might have done. Might have had another chance. I can't guarantee he hasn't. But I don't know if any evidence he had. I've never met him in any context. He lived in the same town as me. We both went. That's why we shared the flat. We went to university from the same school. And I... And you know, I, I, I could have had contact, I think, if he... If, I don't know. Only God knows. But I know there was an opportunity then where he came really close and he didn't want it. I mean, he liked the girls and the drugs that were around a bit and he just liked to get on with his life. I wonder what's happened to him. I wonder if sickness or riches 
or poverty have hardened him. I wonder if he's had failed relationships. I wonder what's happened to a 60-year-old man, if he's still out there, called Mike, who came that close to Jesus, however many years ago, I hardly like to think, 40 years ago. 30, 40, I don't know, I forget how old I am. And, 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 you know, it's sobering. You think you have a window of opportunity. Opportunity is only a visitor. You can't guarantee it will come again. You can't guarantee that there will be another opportunity. And so as we finish, there's two things I want to say. If you're not a Christian and you're listening to this this morning or other mornings, please do something about it now. It may be to respond this morning or it may be to join our Alpha course, which is in progress right now, just week two on Tuesdays here. Do something, action, not just stirred like, whoa, this is quite sobering. You know, do something. And what about the majority of us who probably are believers? If God's spoken to you about something... He's expecting some sort of response. If you've just been stirred by anything I've said in the last three, four weeks when I've preached, just God is saying, this is an opportunity. Like this old prophet, it was an opportunity for something to be different for him. It was an opportunity for him, but he needed to get out of Bethel in his case. He needed to go where the man of God was, not bring him to where he was. And there may be an equivalent for some of us. John, can you come up?